to something today, and that is, I know it's hot in here, and uh, so sometimes it's important for just to acknowledge this. We turned off the AC so that you would be in honor of the people in El Salvador, and they don't have AC, so we wanted you guys to feel good about that. I'm just kidding. It's just not keeping up with the amount of people in the 90-degree weather, all right? It's already set very low, so uh, just deal with it, and uh, use your fans, and it'll all be good. Guys, I'm so excited about this message uh, series this summer because we are asking the hard questions about Christianity. They're questions that all of us have asked. They're questions we've all wondered before. And because of that, it's something that we thought this summer, we just wanted to tackle the difficult questions. Questions like, is God real? Is Jesus who he says he is? Um, Is the Bible reliable? Things like this. And today we are tackling that question, is the Bible reliable? And we're, I love the perspective on the video because we're going to be showing these most every weekend as we're hearing the perspectives of people who have journeyed in this same territory. They've traveled down these same roads, asked these same difficult questions. And so we wanted to acknowledge through their processing too that you are not alone. Is the Bible reliable? Is it reliable or is it just a made up book of imaginative fairy tales? Or did the events in the Bible actually happen? Is the Bible really God's revelation to us? Or is it just a collection of man-made books? Friends, I want you to first realize that that the reason that we know God at all is because He chose to reveal Himself to us. It's not because we sought Him and found Him. It's not because... Uh, we just did a great discovery. It's because God chose to reveal himself to us. And he did that through acts in nature. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that the acts of God are obvious. The character of God is obvious through the things that you see in nature. And you see his character qualities in that. Uh, there were times in, in history where God just showed up. Where maybe to Moses or Abraham or to others, God just showed up in a special way. And there was something miraculous that he did. And he revealed himself. Of course, the greatest way he revealed himself is through the incarnation. Christ becoming man. Becoming one of us. Living among us. Dying and atoning death. Resurrecting from the grave. But one of the most enduring ways to communicate is through words. And I love the fact that God chose the medium of written communication. That he would use that to be enduring and lasting. Those of you who dated your spouse in college, you know what it was like to want to communicate with somebody that you loved. You called, you made a conversation. Back in my day, there was no texting. Uh, and so I would call Lisa Collect many times um, back in the day. And those of you who don't know what that means, I mean, she paid the charge. I'm just kidding. I didn't really do that. But um, that's a dated joke, all right? So I shouldn't do that anymore. But anyway, but what I realize is that, that we have old letters as well. And there's just something about old letters. There's something about written communication that matters. Uh, My grandparents uh, died in 1995, and they lived in North Carolina. We have a nursing home in North Carolina that we still own that they started. And if you think we're a traditional family that still holds on to traditional things, you're right. Their house is still there, and it looks just like it did in 1995. Not only that, it looks like it did not, not, not just in 1995 when they died, but in 1975 when I was a kid in that area. They still have the same green shag carpet that they had in 1975. You talk about a, a, a carpet that has fulfilled its warranty. I mean, it's amazing. It has really withstood a lot of uh, damage. And, and so that's where they live. But usually I don't have a lot of time down there. We have a family meeting, uh, et cetera. But uh, 
last time I was there, I had a little bit more time, and I went kind of searching in my mamaw's laundry room. And in there, I found a box of old letters. And I started reading through them, and I almost felt like I was invading their privacy a bit as I was reading these old letters. In 1942, my grandfather wrote a letter to my grandmother. He was in Atlanta at the time at a revival meeting. And back in that day, when they did revival meetings in churches, it wasn't just two or three days. It was like two or three weeks. And so he took a train to Atlanta, and he was leading a revival and was preaching. His first part of his letter was, my darling, and he talks about the revival, and he's talking about the great things that are happening in people's lives and how people are making decisions for Christ. And then, as he began to write more, he became much more personal even much more intimate as he talked about missing her, my darling, and wanting to see her and embrace her and his, his baby Nancy, which is my mother. And he's writing this very personal letter to her. And I just really enjoyed what, seeing his words to my grandmother back in 1942, back during the war. Now, if he had not written that, I would never know the kind of thoughts or feelings that he expressed to her in 1942. That was personal between them. I would never have known what he might have shared with her. And, but, but the fact that he wrote it, while the paper might be slightly browner than what it was, or maybe slightly more frayed than what it was, the words still have deep meaning. And I think one of the reasons that God chose the medium of written communication, oral and then written communication, was so that we would have that today. And so there would be lasting and enduring, and God revealed himself in his words. Deuteronomy 18, 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation to us. But why do we believe that? Why do we believe that the Bible is reliable, that it's consistent, that it's credible, that it's the Word of God? Several years ago, Dr. David Faust came up with an acronym that really describes the credibility of the Bible. And he begins this way. He talks about the claims in the Bible that are incredible. Over 2,000 times in the Old Testament alone, it says, Thus saith the Lord. And that's quite a claim. You say, well, that's no big deal. A lot of people make claims about God or about people, etc. But, but why is that a big deal? Because these claims are so big about God, even predictions about the future. The Deuteronomy chapter 18 tells us that if any of those predictions were incorrect, the individual who said them would be stoned to death, no questions asked. So when they said, thus saith the Lord, it was a big deal. There were claims made about God that then could be either verified or not verified within the time of the writing of those individuals. Jesus himself made several claims about who he was, the Messiah, God in the flesh, claims that would be verified right there within his lifetime. In fact, with his biggest claim, I'm going to die, a brutal execution, and in three days I'm going to resurrect. No, no more claim would be bigger to back up than resurrecting from the grave. If he doesn't resurrect, Christianity is dead, uh, he's dead, the movement dies, it dies with him, no problem. 
But the problem was that he did not actually stay dead. He did resurrect from the grave. And the problem from the perspective of those who were against Christianity was they could not deny that claim as much as they tried. They, there, were no body, there was no body produced. And the worldwide movement of Christianity started because Jesus backed up a big, thus saith the Lord. The claims in the Bible are incredible. It's also historically accurate. I mean, if you think that the Bible is just a myth or it's fairy tales, then it would not match up with historical events. But in fact, it does. The, there are other histories written about the Bible or about the events in the Bible by authors outside the Bible. For example, Flavius Josephus was born in 37 AD, first century historian. In his book, Jewish Antiquities, he refers to Jesus Christ. It said, Annas convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. Tacitus, in 112 AD, referred to Jesus also. He said, Christus was put to death by Pontius Pilate. There are several references from first century historians outside the Bible about the events, the places, or the people that are included within the Bible. And if the Bible is true, you would expect it to be true historically. You would also expect that the cities and the places and the kings that are written about in the Bible are actual places. And archaeology helps us to verify that. The same story is repeated over and over and over again from the Old and New Testament. A critic will come out and will say, that city never existed. That civilization never existed. But then the critic will dig where the Bible points to. The critic will find evidence that refutes the criticism. The critic will change their story. Even many times the critic will believe the Bible. And this has happened so many times that Nelson Gluck has stated, no archaeological discovery has ever been found in contrast to a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. That's why Luke 19 verse 40 says, if, if you don't testify about me, the rocks are going to cry out. What does that mean? That means archaeology is going to speak. Something's going to speak about the reality of God if you're not willing to. Archaeology has unearthed the cities of Pithom and Ramses in Egypt where the Hebrews toiled as slaves and they have laid bare strata from that time period that tell of the flame and destruction that correlates with the time the children of Israel left Egypt. In Gibeah, they have found King Saul's mountain stronghold. They have unearthed at Megiddo uh, the vast stables of King Solomon, who had 12,000 horsemen. They have found the tunnel that King David used to enter and capture Jerusalem. And there are countless discoveries about the New Testament as well. And did you know that in the New Testament, we're told about the time where Jesus hung on the cross and there was a great earthquake in that area, and that there was a great eclipse of the sun that no one expected. And Samaritan and Greek astronomers document a solar eclipse that parallels the time that Christ hung on the cross. Phlegon, a Greek author, writes that there became the greatest eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour. It became so dark that the stars appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea, exactly as the Bible said happened. History has verified over and over again the reliability of the Bible. And in 2011, when we went to Israel and we walked on those places, there was just something holy about the whole experience. As we went on the Sea of Galilee, 
as we walked in Capernaum, where Jesus is, is sort of his home base in Galilee. And there was the ruins of Peter's house, the house where they believed that they dropped the man on the mat who was a paralytic, and Jesus healed him. The ruins of that house are still there. There's Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. There's the, the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus gave the, Mount, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and we walked that hillside, and there is just something about when the events of the Bible, you actually walk those places, you go, there is just something authentic about the Scripture. Archaeological evidence for the Scriptures is overwhelming. So overwhelming that Warner Keller, a journalist that sought out to investigate the archaeological findings to determine whether the Bible was true or not, found it so reliable that he came back and wrote a book called The Bible as History. And when speaking about the Bible, he says, the breathtaking discoveries of archaeology have validated biblical events as historic facts and have been recorded with an accuracy that is nothing less than startling. He even goes on to say, thanks to the finding of archaeologists, many of the biblical narratives can be better understood now than ever before. History has verified it over and over again. Not only that, the manuscript evidence for the Bible is incredible. How do you verify an old book? Based on its manuscript evidence. How much manuscript evidence is there? How much today do we still have that was written way back when? Author Josh McDowell writes in his book, More Than a Carpenter, Aristotle wrote in his Poetics about 343 B.C. And yet the earliest copy we have of Aristotle's Poetics is about A.D. 1100. Nearly a 1400-year gap between the time he wrote it and the earliest copy we have. Caesar composed his history of the Gaelic Wars between 58 and 50 B.C. Its manuscript authority rests on nine or ten copies that date about a thousand years after it was written. But when it comes to the manuscript authority of the New Testament, it is overwhelming in uh, contrast. Over 20,000 New Testament manuscripts or bits of manuscripts are in existence today, some dating back to as early as 100 years after Christ was here. And what that tells us is that that there was something valuable about what was written, and the scribes wanted to make sure, so they copied it over and over and over and over again. So when you read the Bible, you know that there is something to be cherished about it because these are not fictional places. These are places that you can go to, you can visit today, things that are not imaginary. History and archaeology verify the historical uh, validation of the Scripture. There's also a remarkable unity. The Bible's not just one book, it's 66. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And, and the books of the Bible are written across three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written over a span of 1,500 years, nearly 60 generations. It was written by 40 different authors, most of which never knew each other and didn't live during the same period of time. And within the span of history, we see all of these individuals writing about hundreds of controversial topics, and yet they write with incredible consistency. Now, if, let me just ask you, I, we probably have 100 and so people, 125 people in here today. If I just ask you all today, let's all get together, you write a paragraph, I'll give you five of the most controversial topics out there today on religion, politics, etc. How many of you think that we're going to come up with about 125 different opinions on a lot of that stuff, right? And we all live in the same time period. I know this because I read your Facebook posts. No, I'm just kidding. So we all live in the same time period. We all basically have the same economic kind of standard, the basic same 30-mile radius, and yet we would have all kinds of different opinions on topics. 
the Bible is written with an incredible consistency. The contradictions within the Bible are not found. You find this incredible unity within the Bible. In fact, if you read from the very beginning to the very end, you're going to see this read almost like a novel as it reads through the different events and stories of the real life people. And it's all about the redemption of God, of, of the people of God, of the world, so that God will be able to redeem us and bring them back to himself. It is incredible consistency on these topics. You say, well, how did that happen? That's impossible. If you just pick people over 60 generations and three continents and different languages, how did it happen? Something outside of the writing, someone outside of the writing of time and space had to oversee the events and the things that happened and were written about in order for this kind of unity to happen. And the Bible is also indestructible. Mark chapter 13, verse 31 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So many times through human history, Somebody has come along to try to destroy the Bible, and they thought the way to destroy Christianity is to destroy the Bible. In 303 A.D., Emperor Diocletian was persecuting the church, and he thought the way to destroy Christians was to get rid of the Bible. Every copy, every letter, every word of Scripture. And so his soldiers went door to door and burned and confiscated the copies of the Scripture. That same year, a coin was struck with the inscription on it that said, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of gods is restored. He thought he had done away with Christianity because he did away with the Bible, but he didn't. Within 10 years, Constantine came along. He embraced Christianity, and one of his first acts as emperor was to commission the making of 50 copies of the Bible handwritten at the government's expense. How many of you think that would happen today? Remember, the Bible was not written with permanent markers or on nice paper. It was written on papyrus and animal skin with crude and primitive writing instruments. And yet we have more manuscript evidence today supporting the text of the Bible than any other ten ancient literature pieces combined. Yet we don't question the validity of those ancient texts, yet people do question the validity of the Bible. People have tried for years to discredit and destroy the Scripture, and yet it's remained. And then we also have science and prophecy. Now listen, the Bible is not a scientific book. It was never intended to be. But if it's from God and it speaks of scientific things, you would expect that those scientific things would be handled accurately, correct? And there are a couple places in particular where we find this. Did you know in Job chapter 26, verse 7, it says, He, God, suspends the earth over nothing? He suspends the earth over nothing. Now think about that. Job is one of the most ancient books of the Bible, and it says that God suspends the earth over nothing. That wasn't common thought to about 3,000 years after that was written. Isaiah 40, verse 22, describing God, it said, He is, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. How could Isaiah know that much about science in 700 B.C.? I mean, I thought the world was flat. Can you think so? There's a whole new movement. Just read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. God knew ahead of time the world was actually round. But it's not just science, it's prophecy. One of the biggest reasons I believe the Bible is because the prophetic prophecy, those things that were said in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament that then came true. John chapter 13, verse 19 says, From now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus said, look, some things are going to happen, and when it happens you're going to know that I'm the one who said it. You're going to remember that it's true. For centuries, skeptics could simply excuse away the authority of the Bible by saying, well, sure, Jesus fulfilled all the prophecy of the Old Testament. Probably what they did was he lived his life, 
and then they went back and revised those Old Testament texts to match up with his life. That way, he fulfilled the prophecies. But that was a nice attempt until 1947. That year, a shepherd boy near Qumran by the Dead Sea was out roaming around, and he was throwing rocks, and he heard the rock break some pottery. And when they investigated, they unearthed a library that the Jewish people had buried during the time of war. And it contains some of the most ancient manuscripts ever discovered. Experts estimated that many of the manuscripts were written somewhere between four and 300 years before the birth of Christ. And when they unrolled those scrolls, which were tested and confirmed to have been written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, guess what? Every single prophecy was there just as the Christians knew it would be. He would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, called Emmanuel, betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, be silent at his trial, executed among thieves. His enemies would cast lots for his clothing. They would mock and ridicule him. He would be buried in a new tomb and raised from the dead after three days. In fact, if you don't believe in prophecy, just read Psalm chapter 22, and you will read in Psalm 22 one of the most graphic descriptions of the crucifixion of Christ described in an Old Testament passage, and all the feelings and emotions that Jesus experienced in Psalm 22 would actually be lived out in the New Testament time. Read Psalm 22, and you'll understand the crucifixion was described hundreds of years before that brutal execution was even invented by the Romans. There is just something about God being above time and space that says, when this happens, you're going to know who I am. Another reason why we believe the Bible is just because it's true today. I mean, the Bible's not just practical then, it's practical today. And there's, it's so important to remember, this, this wasn't something written thousands of, or hundreds of years ago that has no bearing it was written thousands of years ago, and yet has complete bearing on my life. In fact, if you read the Bible, and many times you've done this, you read the Word of God, and there's something that's said there that just penetrates your heart and soul. Sometimes I've heard people say, you are reading a passage on the right side of the page, or maybe on my phone a little bit higher, and my eyes fell on a passage that was on the other page, and... Preacher, there was just something about what I read that just penetrated me, and I felt like I've read that before, but it was just what I needed today. I remember when I first started preaching, um, I had a Bible college professor or a Christian college professor that was like, hey, here's how you should preach. You should like get a text, and then you should tell a story, and you should tell your personal stories, and they should kind of lead through that text and use that text and then keep telling your story. So your story became the dominant thing. And it was actually a really creative way to teach. And I, I, I could teach off of like a card. It was like three by five because I would just have key words for my stories and one little text in there. Boom. It's like everybody, oh, that's great, you know. But the problem with that is after about four weeks of stories, I ran out of stories. And I was like, this is all I got. I'm only like 20. You know, I only got a few stories. What am I going to do for the rest of my ministry? And, and uh, that led me then to like just go, I'm just going to let the text speak. And so... For so many years, I just let the text speak. And so this summer, even, we're just letting the text speak. And, and when that happens, there's just something deep and rich about it. Because as you're teaching a text, you don't have to be so creative and compelling. Just let the Word of God speak. Let the Holy Spirit penetrate people's hearts. That's what it does. And, 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 and things, days where I walk out of here and go, that was the worst message I've ever preached in my life. That was so terrible. I'm never going to do this again. Somebody will come out and go, gosh, preacher, that was like exactly what I needed. And I go, how in the world did that happen? You know, were you in the same church service as me? Because that was the worst sermon ever. It's the Holy Spirit. It speaks to our heart. It penetrates our heart. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active. 
sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible corrects me and convicts me and challenges me and grows me. And my guess is it does the same for you. And by the way, the Bible, not only is the Bible the word of God, it is the ultimate word of God. Some religions say that in addition to the Bible, you need something else. And that God revealed himself to this apostle or this new apostle or this new person that God revealed himself. So we're going to add to the text of the scripture or, or maybe God reveals himself if you have kind of more of a liberal view that God reveals himself through your own personality and experiences. And therefore, it can change the text of the Bible based on kind of how you view it. But the Bible claims about itself that it is God's word to us. It is his final authority. Don't believe me. Read Revelation. Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If he adds, anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes the words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. I believe that the Holy Spirit can guide and convict and challenge. That the Holy Spirit can give us a message for us something that needs to lead us. But there is a movement out there today in the Christian world that says that God is still revealing new words to you. And if God is revealing new words, new revelation, then we, as a Bible college professor of mine said, we should open the canon of the Bible once again and continue to add to its words. And yet that would be in exact opposition to the very thing that Revelation chapter 22 says. I'm just saying be careful there. That's all. Be careful there. Now, if you take the first letter of all these points that Dr. Faust came up with, you notice that the word there is Christ. Christ. And I love that because Christ is seen throughout the entire fabric of the Bible. Listen to what Josh McDowell says. Only God could have created a book of such antiquity, which has been transmitted accurately from the time it was originally written. It's correct when it deals with historical people and events, contains no scientific absurdities, and remains true and relevant to all people for all time. Theologian and author John R.W. Stott says that Jesus' view of Scripture is the ultimate apologetic for its veracity. He writes, The overriding reason for accepting the divine inspiration and authority of Scripture is plain loyalty to Jesus. If Jesus endorsed the Old Testament, which he did, Setting upon it the stamp of his own approval, he also foresaw the writing of the scripture of the New Testament parallel to the scripture of the Old Testament. Indeed, he not only foresaw it, he actually intended it, and he deliberately made provision for, for it by appointing and authorizing his apostles. The Bible claims that God has spoken to us, that his word is sufficient, and from a logic standpoint, would it make any sense for God to allow his one and only son to die an atoning death? come back from the grave and to not make it available to us in a form that we could understand and substantiate that claim that would make any sense jesus came he died the entire story of the scripture is about the life of jesus christ from the very beginning to the end you read the book of genesis all the way to the book of revelation you will see this incredible redemptive story of god and and how he redeems mankind right from genesis chapter 2 where man falls in the garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 where the very first prophecy is ever recorded 
where God says to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, he said, one of these days there will be someone born of the seed of a woman, i.e. Christ. You will strike his heel, meaning that's the first prediction, a prophecy of the crucifixion. So early, Genesis chapter 3, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Death will no longer be there. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We will have victory in Christ. Right from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture, we see man's fall, God's redemptive story of mankind, laid through all the pages of Scripture, from the prophets who tell about the coming of the Messiah, to then the Gospels who tell about the coming of Jesus, who died and lived, and then who then the apostles tell us about the church and how we're to live. Christ is the theme of the Bible all the way through Revelation where we see him coming again as a crowned king who comes to redeem his world back to himself. John Wesley once wrote, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safely on the happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of the book. And let us be a church of the book. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the Bible. And thank you for the evidence that you give us to believe. So that we know that we know. That we don't just go through life wondering, is this real, is this not? But God, we'll know, we weigh the evidence, we've examined the evidence, and we believe. And we stand firmly on the authority of Scripture. God, help us to always be a people of the book. We love you, we worship you, we follow you. In Jesus' name.